worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In a war full of lost opportunities, the Antietam campaign stands out. Few topics have been studied in as much detail as that campaign's climactic battle, where McClellan had the chance to defeat Lee's army decisively, but managed only a tactical draw that let the Army of Northern Virginia survive to retreat and continue fighting two more years. What has not been studied nearly as much is the even greater lost opportunity to divide and conquer Lee's army a few days earlier at the less well-known but potentially critical Battle of South Mountain. We'll find out what happened there from Brian Jordan, author of Unholy Sabbath, The Battle for South Mountain in History and Memory, today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected listen listen the world is talking the world talk radio variety channel welcome to civil war talk radio i'm jerry prokopovich coming to you on a beautiful friday afternoon in april of 2013 from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, home of the champion Pirates from the CIT tournament, whatever that may be this year, but not speaking for the Pirates basketball team or any of its teams or the institution in any way, just for myself here at ECU. And I know my guest will likewise speak only for himself as we return today to talking about the Civil War after a hiatus of several weeks enforced by a series of circumstances, almost prolonged. We had a little uh, technical glitch for a few minutes there at the top of the hour that slowed our getting started, but I'm happy to say everything is connected. We're back on track and uh, ready to, again, resume talking about uh, the Civil War. We didn't do that uh, Last week it was Good Friday, Friday before Easter, March 29, and that is a state holiday here in North Carolina. How the state does that uh, without doing anything like it for uh, Passover or Ramadan or anything else is really quite remarkable, but they find their way. Uh, but it almost got worse in the past week when a the state legislature uh, saw introduced a resolution that would uh, make it legal for North Carolina to establish a state religion that, that announced North Carolina was not bound by Supreme Court rulings, uh, 
separating uh, government and religion. Our own local city council here in Greenville is wrestling with this as there are council members who uh, like to open the meetings with uh, a very extensive and, and particular uh, sect-based prayers to Jesus uh, and some other folks are not comfortable with it. Well, it all goes on. Um, I wouldn't mention it except that the North Carolina legislature seems determined to make our state the source of amusement for the rest of the country. The only good thing I can say about this is it does uh, distract them from other things. Yesterday they, they voted to make sure that all elementary school children learn how to write in cursive and also learn their times tables. Um, I expect next they'll be required to learn casting out nines, uh, if you remember learning how to do that many decades ago, how to work a dial telephone, perhaps how to engrave a clay tablet. Um, the, uh, the legislature wants things done as they were when they were children, and uh, we are not going to get into this 21st century without some kicking and screaming. But the good thing is it distracts them from cutting the higher education budget, which the governor proposes to do quite drastically. So... Uh, We'll see how that works out. Uh, in happier local history news, uh, beyond budget cuts, we missed a show the, two weeks ago, uh, March 22nd, uh, because the university was engaged in a, what turned into a, snowballed into a really substantial program titled New Haruka 300, Celebrating, no, that's the wrong word, uh, commemorating, and they were careful to use that word, commemorating the 300th anniversary of the Tuscarora War here in North Carolina. And as a historian, I was uh, chagrined to admit how little I knew of this engagement, which in fact took place right here in eastern North Carolina uh, within uh, a musket shot of the university in some cases, and which destroyed the Tuscarora the way... Uh, King Philip's War in New England uh, destroyed, to a large extent, uh, the the contemporary political power of the Indian nations there. Did not destroy the people; they they survived. Their descendants live today, but broke their their institutional power. And it just made me aware that uh, the same doubtless is true in the Civil War that there are local events everywhere that people can be living right on top of and not really know anything about. So it was quite fascinating to find out about uh, what the Tuscarora and the English did to one another 300 years ago, uh, just as we'll talk today about what uh, Northern and Southern Americans did to one another 150 years ago. We've got good shows lined up for weeks ahead. We'll be back now consistently through the end of the academic year, uh, on April 12th next week, Rhonda Cole will be talking uh, with us. She has a regimental history that will uh, enlighten and uh, entertain. Then Earl Muldering III will be with us the following week. He's written about New Bedford, Massachusetts, in the war. So we'll hear from an Illinois regiment and a New England state. Uh, and we've got other people lined up at various dates, but we'll we'll come to those uh, as we get there. In the meantime, to find out what's going on, please go to www.impedimentsofwar.org, uh, where Mark Gaffney keeps uh, everything in order, and make sure you know who's coming up when. You can support that website and the show in general uh, with donations there through the PayPal button. You don't have to have PayPal. It will 
magically take your money. Uh, you can just think about donating, and PayPal will take your money, uh, give it to the show, and I'll use it to buy books. And there are some big books coming up. Uh, James Oakes and Alan Gelzo, for example, both have big 600-page books that I hope to discuss on the show in the near future. I'll be persuading our library here at ECU to buy those books. But if they're down to searching for change in the cushions in the student lounge for their book budget, then uh, we may have to resort to your contributions and buy them for the Civil War Talk Radio Library. So that's what we're doing there. Well, my voice may betray the fact I'm not feeling 100% today. It seems every year when it gets sunny and beautiful and the trees begin to flower, I get sick and do a show with no voice. And uh, hopefully this will be the only one this year. But it means more from our guest, which is what we want to hear. Our guest today is Brian Matthew Jordan. He has written a book called Unholy Sabbath, The Battle of South Mountain in History and Memory, September 14, 1862. And uh, delighted to welcome him to the show. Uh, Mr. Jordan, are you there? Yes, it's uh, great to be here, Jerry. Great. I'm glad glad to hear your voice. We were we were wrestling with the phones, uh, yeah. as you know, and I appreciate you sending that quick email. We were we used many different techniques to get together today. So, uh, I always look at the the jacket flap if I'm talking to someone I haven't uh, had the pleasure of meeting yet, and uh, I see that you are at Yale University currently uh, uh, working on your doctoral degree. I am. I'm actually uh, this year uh, teaching in an adjunct role at Gettysburg College uh, where I earned my undergraduate degree, but I am still uh, in course at Yale and, and finishing up my dissertation on the lives of, of Union veterans. Well, I definitely want to ask you about that uh, as we get into the show. But this, of course, gives me an opening that all listeners to the show know I uh, never sort of take advantage of, uh, uh, in this case, recalling the, the words of Thurston Howell III on Gilligan's Island. Oh, lovely, I had the worst nightmare last night. I dreamed I was a Yale man. Uh, <laughs> uh, I say that as a Harvard man. I get to do that once once in a while on the show. Uh, although this week I'm actually a Michigan man cheering for my team in the Final <laughs> Four, but let's get back to work here. Um, so you're teaching uh, adjunct right now at, at Gettysburg. Uh, I mentioned Alan Gelzo a few minutes ago. You must uh, have the opportunity to work with him some. Of course. He was uh, my undergraduate mentor, and he is the uh, at the helm of our Civil War Era Studies program here, which is uh, really a unique program uh, among undergraduate uh, schools in the country. Uh, we have 60 really enthusiastic uh, students who, who come to us wanting to, to study the Civil War in an interdisciplinary way. Uh, and it's really just a, an intellectual hothouse of, of all things Civil War. So it's it's really exciting to be here, and there's no better place for a Civil War historian to, to teach uh, this subject than Gettysburg. Well, that, that's easily believed. I'm, I'm, uh, Peter Carmichael, I know, is the uh, director of the, the Civil War Center since uh, Gabor Borat retired and the Civil War Institute. And I remember when that job was available, thinking what a great thing it would be to, to be there. Uh, and uh, something, I still have my, my thoughts on that, that if, if, if uh, Dr. Carmichael is not careful crossing the street or uh, you know, otherwise taking care of himself and that job ever opens up again, I may have to throw my hat in the ring because that 
working at Gettysburg does seem like really a a great thing to do. We have an undergraduate student here, I'm sorry, a graduate student here who was an undergrad at Gettysburg a couple of years ago, and he uh, was actually very instrumental in the, the new Haruka 300 uh, mm-hmm. program that I was talking about a few minutes ago. He assisted Larry Tice, uh, the professor who ran the uh, the whole project. And so I've, I've heard from him uh, quite a bit about the the undergraduate life at Gettysburg, and he's very enthusiastic uh, about sure. it as well. Yeah. So must must be a really really fun place to teach. It's a really unique place to be, and and the, the enthusiasm is is just unmatched. So um, the uh, this book normally when when folks are on the show, it's, it's not uncommon that the book we talk about is their their dissertation turned into a book. Mm-hmm. But this book comes along uh, before your dissertation. What what were you doing uh, before you decided to to do this all the time uh well it uh i worked on the book and and started the book uh while i was here uh as an undergraduate at gettysburg um and and really grew out of my uh lifelong interest uh in the war and out of my uh curiosity about the battle of south mountain of course uh here in gettysburg we're only about 45 minutes uh away from uh, the battlefield, so that was uh, very convenient to to be able to uh, walk the ground uh, there and to, to scout the terrain. Um, I first became interested in in South Mountain um, as a as a young boy, actually, on my first trip to Antietam National Battlefield, um, and I'd done a lot of reading on on the war and had had seen South Mountain referenced uh, in some of the major uh, works, James Murph and Stephen Sears. Um, and really was was wanting to to learn more and inquired at the the visitor center desk um, at Antietam for a, a, a directions to the South Mountain battlefield and was handed a a glossy trifold brochure called Fire on the Mountain um, that uh, offered a driving tour of the South Mountain gaps and uh, found it so frustrating to to navigate uh, that battlefield. The supermarkets and housing developments are. Uh, in many places, snaking their way up the, the mountain as the in the path of the federal army, um, and so I was I was quite frustrated to to, to navigate that battlefield, and it just uh, there was something uh, really quite special about that that field, and uh, I um, uh, was curious to learn more and uh, began um, researching that engagement, which as you as you mentioned has been uh, so often lost in the shadow and the enormity of Antietam. Uh, and what I discovered is that uh, veterans who participated in it on both sides really uh, did remember it as uh, not only an, uh, an important uh, engagement, uh, but as uh, one that uh, in some ways turned the tide of the Maryland campaign. Well, let's talk about that. The, uh, maybe we can set the stage uh, strategically uh, in terms of the Maryland campaign. Uh, your book starts out with... Uh, Really goes back and, and sets the whole stage of the war and gets the reader uh, well framed. But uh, by 1862, uh, when Lee decides to invade the North, uh, mm-hmm. what? Why is he doing it? What's his purpose? Where's he headed? Well, uh, I I think uh, Isaac Heisinger back in 1912 uh, said that the, the Maryland campaign is one of the most uh, misunderstood. Uh, campaigns and a campaign that uh, kind of bristles with 
omissions and unquestioned assumptions. And uh, I think the name Maryland campaign is, is really the, the first of those because I think it, it blinds us to what Lee was actually intending to do in the fall of 1862. And uh, he was really, I, I think, uh, headed for Pennsylvania, exactly where he was headed the following uh, summer in uh Early September, on September the 4th, 1862, he, he wrote to Jefferson Davis and said that uh, if the results of the expedition uh, north of the Potomac would justify it, he would uh, propose to enter Pennsylvania. Of course, uh, uh, Lewis Mannerin discovered uh, a proclamation uh, to the people of Pennsylvania uh, using similar language uh, to the, the more famous proclamation to the people of Maryland. So. In the fall of 1862, he's looking to take the war onto northern soil, but he's looking to, to head into Pennsylvania, I think, to capture uh, the, the crucial rail junction at Harrisburg, maybe water traveler on the Susquehanna, uh, perhaps turn east uh, to Philadelphia or New York City. Uh, and it's often easy to forget that Lee is a, a astute, uh, has an astute political mind. Uh, he reads northern newspapers in camps. Uh, he understands the war weariness and uh, the discomfort with um, the emerging emancipation policies in 1862. He knows that the midterm congressional elections are approaching. He knows that uh, the Great Britain and France, the watchers overseas, are within a whisper of uh, recognizing uh, the Confederacy. So all of these things are are playing into his mind. And I think he's also... Uh, of course, uh, stung by uh, a streak of hubris, uh, especially after his, his uh, dashing victory at Second Manassas at uh, the end of August 1862, and, and really believes that uh, by taking the, the war north of the Potomac, he can uh, have that uh, Armageddon-like victory that uh, will ultimately bring the Confederacy its independence. Now, there's a lot of persuasives circumstantial evidence there suggesting that Lee is planning to go all the way to Pennsylvania but there's no smoking gun there's no nothing in Lee's own words that says this is why I'm invading Maryland is that correct there's well there's not a smoking gun but we do have the the proclamation to the people of of Pennsylvania uh that I that I mentioned earlier that uh, Lewis Manor and uh discovered and i think if you if you review the uh, uh special orders 191 and the way in which lee divides his army once it's uh, across the potomac and is in maryland um, it's uh poised uh, to uh in to be in perfect position to make that uh, trek across the mason dixon line into pennsylvania he has the vanguard of his army all the supply wagons and trains uh with james longstreet's uh corps in hagerstown uh, ready to head north. Um, uh, so I, I think there. I think you're right. I think um, we're a bit short of a of a smoking gun, but the the circumstantial evidence is is overwhelming. It is interesting that that the the supply train that the wagons are in Hagerstown, which is north of uh, substantial. Well, a lot of the army is back still in in Virginia at Harper's Ferry, trying to capture the Union mm -hmm. garrison there, and other parts are scattered in different places. So it, it's an odd invasion where your supply train is in the vanguard of your army, unless you're planning to go a lot further north. That's right. That's right. So, so there is some some reason why that might be the case. Now, you mentioned Special Orders One Nine One, and that's obviously a key to the campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, 
everybody listening to this show with with maybe a few exceptions knows the, the story of the lost order that reveals to McClellan where all of the pieces of Lee's army are scattered. Right. Uh, in, in your book, you don't really focus on how how much that energized McClellan. Um, mm-hmm. it, 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 I, I wasn't. What I'm trying to say, it, it, it. I enjoyed this book because it didn't do what every other book on the topic does. First of all, it does focus on South Mountain, not Antietam. Mm-hmm. Uh, but typically, we read, "Well, McClellan was going to dither about as always, then he finds this, and suddenly he launches a lightning strike." Um, I have the impression that is that how you see it. Well, I, I think I, I think you're. Um you know, and, and this is another of these these blinders that we have on traditionally. I think when we look at the Maryland campaign, you know, we love to make George McClellan uh, the butt of our jokes as as Civil War historians. And I think if you look at the campaign uh, from a whole, when you look at the situation that McClellan inherits um, from the disaster at Second Manassas um, and his uh, resumption of, of command of the uh, of the now reconstituted Army of the Potomac in the wake of the Army of Virginia disaster with John Pope. Um, if you look at the the circumstances that McClellan is dealing with, he is, he's I think he's keenly aware of uh, the, the the weight of the moment, and he moves forward with uncharacteristic aggression. And I'm I uh, don't pretend to be a, a McClellan apologist by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but I think you have to give credit where credit is due, and I think in the Maryland campaign he he does move forward with uh, and, and restores the morale of that army um, by reorganizing it and pulling it out of the Washington defenses uh, in the early days of September in a way that we wouldn't normally uh, think about McClellan. So if I if I play down the uh, the moral effect of Special Orders 191, I, I think it's because there. this is a different McClellan that we're dealing with in the fall of 1862. Now, normally at this time of the show we'd break for a moment, but since we started late, we're just going to keep going and, and try and get more time in. When, uh, when McClellan pushes the Army forward, he now knows that Lee's army is scattered, that, that some of it is at Hagerstown, some is at Harper's Ferry, some is back at Sharpsburg. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the thing that lies between McClellan's army and all these various vulnerable pieces is this big rise called South Mountain, which is really a long, long-running elevation. Sure. The Confederates occupy it, uh, the, They've got uh, troops guarding the the various gaps across it, so this gets us to the Battle of South Mountain. If Lee, if if McClellan can get through those gaps, he's in the the fox is in the the hen house. <laughs> That's right, and it, and this is again uh, further evidence of McClellan's uncharacteristic uh, aggression. I think in. The Maryland campaign, after he uh, has the the good fortune of, of of verifying the validity of Special Orders 191, uh, he devises a plan that uh, will use South Mountain, that spur of the Blue Ridge, uh, just west of Frederick, um, uh, as uh, the anvil upon which he will uh, attempt to hammer uh, Lee's army. He uses uh, a strategy of divide and defeat uh, in detail um, to send. Uh, Major General Jesse Lee Reno's Ninth Corps and uh, Joseph Hooker's First Corps 
through uh, South Mountain at Fox's and Turner's Gaps, uh, sends the left wing of his army uh, under the command of his protege, uh, Major General William Buell Franklin, uh, commanding the 6th Corps through Crampton's Gap, the back door to Harper's Ferry, hopes to uh, divide and defeat them uh, in detail and, and snap that, uh, that very thin Confederate line uh, across that mountain gap uh, in half, um, and, and that will, uh, of course, shift the momentum um, in this campaign uh, squarely from the Army of Northern Virginia to the Army of the Potomac. So, it's, so first of all, it, it's worth noting this is a multi-core operation. This really is a major attack. It's sometimes portrayed, again, in, in the usual sources as a kind of, not, I wouldn't say half-hearted, but uh, a McClellan-esque sort of gentle push to see if the enemy is there. I, I think that's fair, yeah. <laughs> but but he's doing more than that. That's right, yeah. Yeah, this is this is a, a clearly, uh, I, I think, his most uh, brilliantly coordinated strategy uh, during the war, and it, it certainly is a, it's, it's not a half-hearted uh, series of, of tiny skirmishes to test the Confederate line as, as we've uh, traditionally been told this is a this is a major operation well let's let's take a short break right now this will be our only break and we'll come back in a minute and talk about what happened that day at south mountain our guest today brian matthew jordan is the author of unholy sabbath the battle of south mountain in history and memory i'm jerry prokopovich and this is civil war talk radio <music> Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Brian Jordan, who has written Unholy Sabbath, The Battle of South Mountain in History and Memory, September 14, 1862. We've been talking about the setting for this battle, the opportunity that George McCollin had in the fall of 1862 to divide Robert E. Lee's army as it lay scattered across uh, central and western Maryland, uh, trapped uh, 
by Lee's own uh, plan and by McClellan's knowledge of that plan by finding Special Orders 191. And uh, the South Mountain and the, the Confederate garrisons of the, the three gaps, uh, Turner's Gap in the north and Fox's Gap in the center and Crampton's Gap in the south being the uh, the only thing standing between Lee's army and a, uh, a decisive defeat. So, uh, Brian, what happens uh, in these in in these gaps? Uh, we we mentioned last in our last segment that McClellan has sent uh, at least a core strength toward each gap. It's, it's a large uh, federal attack. Uh, why don't they just roll over and, and roll down the other side? Well, the, the, the reason that uh, it is such a pitched uh, battle, and, and we must keep in mind here that uh, the strengths uh, on other side, they have about uh, 28,000 uh, federal troops uh, in this operation uh, as compared to about 18,000 Confederates defending uh, the pass. Uh, so in, in some ways, and I think this is uh, where a lot of historians like to dismiss what happens here as they, they see this as, as kind of an inevitable uh, federal victory, uh, but the, the terrain is is just uh, really surreal, um, and it's uh, you go up there today, and it's um, you know cars have difficulty uh, ascending uh, the mountain passes at various uh, points. The the terrain uh, that the Confederates commanded on uh, each of the gaps uh, was was really quite stunning, and 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 created. Um, uh, unprecedented uh, work uh, for those uh, federal army corps to to get up those those passes. Um, the uh, the battle begins about nine o'clock on the morning of uh, September the fourteenth uh, with uh, the Ninth Corps in the lead. Uh, Jacob Dolson Cox's Kanawha Division uh, is in the lead and. Uh, the Battle of South Mountain is full of all these uh, curious moments. They are uh, uh, bivouacked uh, that evening uh, around the hamlet of Middletown, Maryland, along the Catoctin Creek, uh, breakfasted about 6 o'clock that morning and uh, had uh, begun their march up the mountain along the, the macadamized uh, National Turnpike, the old National Road. Uh, and as they're ascending the mountain, and of course they are, are, are somewhat blind as they're uh, ascending uh, the mountain, not quite sure what uh, exactly they're getting into, um, they encounter a, uh, a paroled uh, Confederate prisoner, uh, Colonel Augustus Moore from the 28th Ohio, a unit in the Kanawha Division. And, and Moore gives them this uh, kind of cryptic uh, warning, uh, not wanting to violate, uh, of course, the terms of his parole. Uh, he says, my God, be careful uh, in uh, ascending the mountain. Uh, so Cox takes this as, as evidence that uh, there are Confederates in force uh, defending the passes, uh, which they are, uh, Daniel Harvey Hill's uh, division uh, with Samuel Garland's uh, brigade of North Carolinians is up uh, at the Wise Farm. Uh, he sends that message back to Jesse Reno, the Corps commander, and they ascend the old Sharpsburg Road and make um, a connection with uh, the North Carolinians at about 9 o'clock that morning. With Lieutenant Colonel Rutherford B. Hayes, the future president, uh, leading the way with the 23rd Ohio, uh, and he leads uh, uh, a brigade of Ohioans, the 11th, 12th, 30th, and 36th Ohio, uh, go in along a low stone fence at the Wise Farm against Garland's brigade. Um, 
a brigade that's uh, been weakened and bloodied by uh, actions in, in Virginia in 1862, uh, and it's really a, a, a nasty fight. It's a it's a hand to hand fight, and uh, one of the things that, that really struck me in, in doing the research is the the number of references to uh, this being the first hand to hand fight uh, that they remembered participating in. Um, Samuel Garland, the brigade commander for the North Carolinians, uh, will be mortally wounded, uh, ending his uh, young career. He was just 34 years old. Uh, on the federal side, Rutherford B. Hayes will tumble to the ground with the most serious uh, wound of his five uh, woundings during the war. Um, and then there's a, a brief lull um, in uh, the battle as, as reinforcements are, are hurried uh, to the field on both sides. Um, Reinforcements on the Confederate side coming from James Longstreet's uh, Corps, uh, again outside of Hagerstown, uh, and uh, reinforcements uh, coming on the Federal side uh, in the guise of Orlando Bolivar Wilcox's Division of the Ninth Corps. Uh, and they resume the battle that afternoon. Uh, and again, it is it is pitched. It is it is at close range along uh, some of the most rocky and rugged terrain on any Civil War battlefield uh, through. Uh, uh, terrible brambles and woods, uh, and uh, the action at Fox's Gap will continue uh, well through the night um, as as reinforcements are added on on both sides. Uh, and it's that uh, night fight at Fox's Gap that will take the life of the uh, commander of the Ninth Corps, Jesse Reno, um, the highest ranking officer uh, killed until that point uh, in the war on the Federal side. Uh, a similar story at Turner's Gap, uh, which is happening uh, simultaneously uh, to the, the action at Fox's Gap. Uh, this is uh, Joe Hooker and the First Corps' uh, fight. They go up the National Turnpike, and it's it's really a fight for the Turnpike and for uh, two uh, crests uh, that uh, straddle that uh, Turnpike uh, on its uh, east side. Uh, Robert Rhodes's Alabamians are defending uh, the crests uh, astride the National Pike against uh, George Gordon Meade's Pennsylvania Reserve Division, and uh, the Pennsylvania Reserve Division just does uh, splendidly in, uh, in in pushing back Rhodes's uh, men despite their their far superior uh, position. Uh, and then, of course, uh, one of the most uh, the famous events uh, at uh, Turner's Gap. Uh, just uh, to the west of where Meade's men are, are going in is the, the, the fight of the Midwestern uh, Brigade under the command of John Gibbon, uh, the 2nd, 6th, and 7th Wisconsin, and the 19th Indiana. They head up the National Pike and, and will engage in hand-to-hand combat with Alfred Colquitt's uh, Georgia Brigade, and it's that action that, uh, of course, names them uh, the Iron Brigade um, of, of Civil War fame. Uh, six miles. Let me, let me ask a, a question, if, if I mm-hmm. could. When in, in the book you describe these actions sequentially, mm-hmm. in, in one, one chapter on Fox's Gap, the next chapter on Turner's Gap, but you said they, they take place simultaneously. Does Hooker's attack go in as early as Reno's attack, or is there some gap of time between them? No, no. Um, well, Reno's, Reno's attack and the, the attack of the Ninth Corps is, again, on, in the morning. Uh, right and and the attacks on Turner's Gap take place in the afternoon, but there is uh, when I said it, it's simultaneous. There is fighting at, at both gaps in the afternoon. So uh, my my question then is why 
was there any possibility of Hooker going up there sooner in the morning and getting across the Turner's Gap along the National Road before the Confederates defend that? I mean, I, I was struck by the Antietam-like nature where the, the Union attacks, the Confederates defend, the Union's forces widely outnumber the Confederates, so they attack somewhere else. Yeah, and I, the Confederates I, I think move troops over and defend that too. Why not attack everywhere at the same time? I, I think that's absolutely right, and I think that is uh, a criticism that 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 can be leveled um, at, at this battle. And I think you do see that uh, that tendency to send in a corps at a time, as as you see three days later at Antietam, uh, again at South Mountain. Um, and a, a lot of this is is uh, simply the the caution of of uh, brigade and division commanders, Jacob Dolson Cox, even after uh, pushing aside Garland's brigade that morning at, at Fox's Gap. Uh, and he knows that he has them on the run, uh, is, is reluctant to press through the rest of the gap until they can bring up uh, the rest of the Ninth Corps. There, um, it, there is uh, still this, this reluctance, and of course they face um, you know, un, in, almost insurmountable odds in terms of the terrain. Um, but you, but you're, you're right to observe that, that, uh, that kind of uh, nature of the battle, and very Antietam-like. And, and, and I don't want to engage in the Monday morning quarterbacking, which I think is, is all too common in Civil War battle writing, and suggest, mm-hmm. oh, they could have done it this way, they would have won. Uh, I wasn't there, and I've never sent anyone to his death intentionally, much That's less right. uh, thousands of men. So I'm not going to say uh, how they ought to have done it. Mm-hmm. And and I think your answer is a very persuasive one, that, that simply the idea of... that. that the, the, the mental force, the moral force needed to commit a whole army to do all this at once mm-hmm. was not yet there in 1862. Mm-hmm. That's not how McClellan was. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, as Lincoln says later, after another battle, next time put in all your men. Uh, yeah. it, it's not easy to put in all your men. That's uh, right. Yeah. Uh, and and it, it's, it shouldn't surprise us that it doesn't happen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, just because our, our time is unfortunately short, uh, Fox's Gap, Turner's Gap are being forced by these two Union corps. Uh, then in the south you've got Crampton's Gap, uh, which not only leads to the middle of Lee's scattered army, but also uh, heads straight towards Harper's Ferry. What, what happens there? Crampton's Gap is, is again, and again, this is a perfect example of uh, the, you know, the reluctance. And then if you see... Uh, uh, you know any stamp of the traditional notions we have of McClellan uh, in this battle? It's it's uh, at Crampton's Gap, where his protege William Beal Franklin uh, dallies uh, 12 hours after receiving orders uh, at at 5:30 on the evening of the 13th to um, make his way, push his way through the the tiny hamlet of Burkittsville, Maryland, uh, toward Crampton's Gap, the back door to Harper's Ferry. Um, so he dawdles for 12 hours, and uh, even once he sets his army in motion, it's really a, uh, a division commander, a young um, uh, Binghamton, New York lawyer by the name of uh, Joseph Jackson Bartlett, uh, who is, is really in command of the battlefield and is arranging and deploying the troops uh, for their attack, uh, again, up uh, the steep pass. Uh, and it's... Uh, the perhaps the easiest of the gaps uh, to clear for the Union Army because it's it's so thinly defended 
um, only about uh, 800 troops, uh, 800 uh, Virginians under um, under William Parham, are up there along uh, the stone fence of the Mountain Church Road. Um, and uh, they uh, once Bartlett sets them into motion, they ascend uh, the, the slopes, uh, are able to easily push aside Parham's men, um, Confederate uh, reinforcements come in in the guise of uh, Hal Cobb's uh, legion uh, and uh, Paul Sims's uh, men. Uh, they bring up a few artillery pieces, and this is uh, as dusk is beginning to settle over the battlefield. But it's it's simply too late, and and Cobb's men will fall uh, squarely into the pincers of uh, the New Jersey Brigade and Colonel Henry Cake's 96th Pennsylvania. Uh, which compel them to retreat back through the Pleasant Valley. And uh, if there is a lost opportunity uh, in uh, this battle, it's, it's certainly what uh, happens after Cranton's Gap when Franklin's men, having uh, scored the most lopsided victory of, uh, of any of these fights on September the 14th, um, he could have pushed them uh, through the Pleasant Valley and, and back toward Harper's Ferry. And, um, of course, we get into the dangerous ground of counterfactual history of what might have happened there, but it is, a, uh, of course, an incredible uh, lost opportunity. It is interesting. And as you were talking about that, I was thinking, of course, the same uh, ones of us who, who would say, oh, you know, if only he'd pushed forward aggressively, what a great thing he could have accomplished – We'll then turn around and look at uh, Sumner's Corps at Antietam, putting Cedric's division you know, into the West mm-hmm. Woods and mm-hmm. aggressively and, and getting them completely ambushed and slaughtered uh, right. and say, oh, how, how foolish to, to right. go so aggressively. Uh, it's so easy to do uh, from back yeah. here, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, but l- let me ask you, um, uh, for, first I was really struck uh, in this book by what you started to say at the beginning of our talk, how important this was to Union veterans and what a concerted effort uh, lost cause historians made to play down this battle. Could you talk about that? Sure. Um, Union veterans, and, and this was what was was most surprising uh, to me, they, they really remembered uh, this moment, South Mountain, as uh, the, the, the first uh, decisive victory of the Army of the Potomac in uh, the Eastern Theater. And uh, just countless times in letters and diaries, you see them referring to Bull Run Syndrome or uh, the discomfiture of uh, the peninsula in the seven days. And they, they argued that the, the, the moral weight and the, the moral force of, of forcing these gaps and overcoming the long odds and, and ascending this rocky, rugged terrain and finally pushing aside the Confederate enemy and for the first time holding a battlefield. Uh, many of these men who are, are tasked with uh, burying the dead um, write that it's the first time that they have ever held a, a battlefield and, and wrested one from the enemy and, and therefore the first time that they've been tasked with with burying uh, both their, uh, the, the bodies of the enemy and, and, and commanding uh, the battlefield. So it gave them a, a real sense uh, of, uh, of confidence uh, that they had lacked uh, until that uh, that point in the war. Uh, Michael C. C. Adams's uh, work, uh, fighting for defeat, I think, uh, plays uh, in here, in which he he argues that uh, you know the the Yankee army felt uh, inferior to these uh, the southern gentlemen. Well, here was a a stellar example of of where they were able with uh, the, the sheer force and determination and endurance to to overcome. Um, 
a Confederate enemy and to and to win uh, a victory and especially a victory uh, at such a crucial moment um, that uh, enabled them to to check uh, Lee's advantage in the Maryland campaign and, and shift uh, the momentum squarely uh, into McClellan's hands. Um, this was a good transition, and we only have a few minutes, but I wanted to ask you about your uh, your next project that you mentioned uh, at the beginning mm-hmm. of the show, which is looking at the Union soldiers and uh, uh, writing more of a cultural history of what they did. Uh, mm-hmm. And I, first, I want to let our listeners know, you want to get a copy of this book. It's quite uh, enlightening and, and worth reading, and will whet your appetite for the next one. Uh but what what is this project? Uh, what do you mean by a cultural history of Union soldiers? Well, it's it's a it's a cultural history of of Union veterans and their return to uh, civilian life, uh, and it it looks at uh, the the ways in which they complicated the process of sectional reconciliation. And and really, what I'm trying to do is challenge the work uh, of two scholars. Uh, Gerald Linderman uh, in his embattled courage, which I think historians um, I think is a, is a is a splendid book and, and really um, you know opened a new field of of, of soldier studies, uh, but at the same time foreclosed so much conversation of that immediate post-war period uh, with this idea that veterans, Union veterans in particular, went into a, a sort of self-imposed hibernation after the war. Uh, that they were reluctant to talk about what happened, uh, that they were reluctant to talk about their experiences. And then uh, suddenly they reemerge in the 1880s at the height of, of uh, the Romantic Reunion and are, are, are sitting around GAR campfires um, embracing a, a sanitized story of the Civil War. Um, so I want to challenge that because what I what I have found is that the Union veterans were did not go into hibernation and indeed uh, they wielded their their scars and their injuries and the the moral gravity of what they had experienced the death that they saw um, the guilt that they had for being survivors uh, they wanted to share that with uh, the northern civilians and northern civilians. Uh, war-wearied and, and certainly unable to understand uh, just what the Union soldiers had experienced, uh, I think were, uh, were particularly chilly in their reception uh, of these, these veterans as they returned home. It's also, of course, challenging the work of, of David Blight and Race and Reunion. Um, uh, by, by reorienting, I think, Civil War memory studies along a veteran-civilian uh, axis uh, instead of uh, looking at uh, groups, uh, reconciliationists, emancipationists, and white supremacists, um, I think it was possible for uh, these men to forgive their former enemies, but but at the same time never forget. Um, and and that's a really important and dark and undertold story. And I think you can see the the seeds of that in in, in Unholy Sabbath and some of the last chapters. Um, so I'm uh, busy at work on on that project. Well, that's a very fruitful field. Barbara Gannon was on the show uh, a month or two ago, uh, who has just written about Union veterans and mm-hmm. the element of racial integration that she was surprised to find among GAR posts, uh, and the 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 politicization uh, of, of the war, their refusal to let go of the political dimension of the war that David Blight argues that's right uh, became yeah. universal, and then. Uh, uh, Robert Hunt, I think it was, uh, writing about the veterans of the, the Army, Army of the Cumberland, Cumberland. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, a couple, uh, year or two ago. Uh, it just strikes me this is a vein that, that is, is being, uh, mined, 
that has a lot more in it uh, that I'm sure you're finding uh, how these Union soldiers responded. The Confederate veterans got a lot of attention then uh, and, and have continued to do so. And, and uh, you know, nothing I'll, I'll say annoys me more as a historian than when somebody blithely says, well, the winners write the history. Because if, if you've read much Civil War history, you know that's not true at all. That's right. Uh, uh, the bulk of it was written uh, by the, uh, or the bulk of it that entered the national consciousness was certainly written by Southern veterans and, and Southern mm-hmm. apologists for many decades. And Union veterans really did not get, get the same attention. So uh, I think that'll be a very welcome book when it comes out. Well... It is, as always, much too soon, but we've gotten to the end of uh, the time here. Uh, so, Brian, thank you very much uh, for being on the show, and uh, I hope to be back uh, at Gettysburg for one reason or another. If you're there in the fall, I'll, I'll be there during the, uh, hopefully during the Lincoln Forum. Uh, but if not, I'm sure we will cross paths somewhere on the, the uh, Civil War talking circuit, and uh, I'll look forward to that opportunity. All right, Jerry, thanks Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And listeners, you'll want to get a copy of Unholy Sabbath, The Battle of South Mountain by Brian Matthew Jordan. And as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management